difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Scott Tobias. And Tasha Robinson. In our last episode, we revisited Alexander Payne's Election, a story of corruption and high school politics. With this episode, we'll be talking about Corey Finley's new Bad Education, which revisits a true story of malfeasance and misappropriation in a Long Island high school. A bit of warning going in. We're going to be getting into spoiler territory fairly quickly in talking about this movie, uh, but the film itself draws out many of its revelations, so if you have a chance to watch it first, do that. Hugh Jackman plays Dr. Frank A. Tassone, a seemingly perfect school superintendent. He never forgets a name, gives even the smallest problem his full attention, and spends his off-hours discussing Dickens and book clubs, if the term off-hours even applies. Frank seems to be fully dedicated to his job, and with raising the reputation of Roslyn High School. And, being a widower, he has nothing but time to devote to it. He's as successful as he is beloved by students and faculty, particularly his fellow administrator Pam Gluckin, played by Allison Janney. But when Pam's caught using school funds for her own purposes, their relationship quickly unravels. Instead of bailing her out, he calls her a sociopath, a diagnosis she redirects to him, and maybe with good reason. Frank's not what he seems to be. Or, put more accurately, he is what he seems to be, but also a lot more. It appears that only the intrepid reporting of a high school journalist named Rachel, played by Geraldine Vishwanathan, can bring his other sides to light. We'll get into it after the break. real crime here, a theft of taxpayer money. The sum total is 250,000. What? Oh, Jesus, 250,000. Everything's fine. You can't jump the gun here, not when there's this much at stake. We need to know what we're dealing with. Frank. After everything we've worked for. Frank, you get this far. Frank. We have nothing to worry about. Frank's gonna fix this. This kind of behavior, it's cruel, it's sociopathic. Sociopathic? I'm, I'm ashamed of my actions, I'm ashamed of myself. I'm, there's no excuse for it. Well, the sociopathy. Yeah, but... Uh... All right, everyone, what were your impressions of this film? I was into it really early and, mm -hmm. and really hard. I can tell you exactly why it was the tone. The tone of this movie reminded me so much of the movie that I'm going to talk about on your next picture show this week, uh, Steven Soderbergh's The Informant. Just mm -hmm. from the beginning, there was a feeling of like a deep, toxic well of secrets going on underneath the placid surface of this film. And watching Jackman portraying this uh, this kind of like blithe, smooth, glad-talking man who kind of has everybody wrapped around his little finger, you can feel <laughs> that it's going to come apart. You just don't know the details of how it's going to come apart. I just – I enjoyed – Every aspect of watching the buildup, I didn't know the real life story behind this, but you can still pretty much tell what's coming from fairly early on. And then watching it unravel, I think this film is just pretty masterfully made in terms of 
tonal balance, uh, finding a, a, like a little thread of dark comedy, but also making it almost as tense and, and quick moving as a, an action film. It sets up a lot of pins fairly early that it knocks down just very, very diligently, very casually in, in interesting ways and interesting places. And then the place that he chooses to take it to at the end, uh, I just found significant and interesting and fun. I, I dug this movie a lot. I'm so glad to hear that. I mean, this was kind of my suggestion because I saw it at TIFF. Did you see it at TIFF or did you I see did it not. just the, This okay. was my first yeah, time. Yeah, I saw it at TIFF and was really thrilled about it. It, it is, I, I don't know if it was mentioned in the introduction, but this is going to be on HBO. So and they picked it up for a pretty significant amount of money. Though I feel a little bit bummed that it's not getting some kind of theatrical release, but I guess that's not possible now anyway. No. Uh, so people will have a chance to see something pretty awesome if they're HBO subscribers. I just um, hope it's not like, I, I feel like some films go to HBO and kind of disappear, like The Tale, not The, the tale, Sidetrack exactly. things. But that, yeah. that's, a great, that's a great movie that not enough people saw. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's, a, that's this, a best this, actress performance from Laura Dern. I mean, but, but, but this was also know. one where like The Tale was, you know, in some other world where people went to the movies mm. and didn't watch things at home. I mean, this could be an ideal spot for bad education to find an audience but in any case yeah i'm, I'm f- very fond of this film i think it's funny it's quick it's suspenseful all those things that tasha mentioned i also think it's extraordinarily complex you know in, in ways that r- are reminiscent of, of election we'll get to talk about that certain themes uh that the two have in common but what i i liked about it was what an interesting character frank tassone is in how as corrupt as he is and as many mistakes as he makes and has made there's signs of a real educator there, somebody who really does believe in the mission, does want his students to learn. I mean, one of the most significant moments of the film is when, you know, when the sort of thread is pulled on this whole embezzlement scandal, it comes as, as a result of him challenging a student journalist to go beyond a puff piece. It's like nothing has mm. to be a puff piece you can do something more significant. It is just his impulse to do that. I mean, not knowing where this is going necessarily, not knowing that she's going to do so well that she's going to start this brush fire that consumes the entire administration in him. But I appreciated that aspect of it. And I appreciated the fact that it's set in a high school, um, this Roslyn High School, which like many high schools that get students and placed in Ivy League schools and are considered good schools, great schools, um, there's so much tied up with that, so many class issues tied with that, up with that, so many issues with property values. I mean, these are things that are a big part of adulthood and, and having children and, and you know the education system in general. And I, and I think the film nails that. It nails kind of the disparities between people like Frank and Pam and what they make and what kind of lives they can expect for themselves and, you know, the super wealthy people who can afford to move to a school district like that. I mean, there's so much interesting stuff in this movie. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with Jackman's performance. He's so good. And, and I think the moment he challenges Rachel to pursue the story, it's like it's example of how compartmentalized his life has become where it's like, you know, he's a very good educator. And, of course, that is exactly what he should be saying to her. And it almost almost doesn't occur to him that that – could touch the other part of his life, which is this, you know, super corrupt <laughs> embezzler with a whole other secret life um, that the rest of the people around him don't know about. Yeah, no, I like this movie quite a bit too. I think it may be a step down in terms of stylization in terms of Finley's last movie, but maybe that's sort of, you know, because Thoroughbreds I thought was really distinctive, had a really distinctive yeah. style it to doesn't, it. This is not a hyper-formal 
no. movie in the same way that Thoroughbreds was. But it's it's not I mean it's not unstylish. There is kind of journalistic quality to it in some ways as well, and I think it works for that. But I mean everyone in this movie is really good. I think Jackman is is you know he's good, but you really get him to see him dig into a role quite as complex as this. So that was the pleasure to see. And he's so charming. And when he's in good educator mode, I mean he's so charming, you could totally buy people being drawn in by this. Because I also think it is, the thing about him is he's not a phony in the sense that he actually does accomplish these things for the school. Yeah. And he brings this really high-minded idea of what education should be with him, and it's infectious and it rubs off. But there are other complications to that character <laughs> that are not uh, necessarily uh, reflected in his approach to education. No, but there is there's something there about and you know this is a theme that we'll talk about later in connection with election. But the the idea of the corruptibility of adulthood about how you can end up on that slippery slope of you know using school funds to pay for you know a cup of coffee and then suddenly you're <laughs> you know secret you know, gay lover in the city, all of this, you know, money that's supposed to be used for, I think, what, science equipment or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, pamphlets, printed pamphlets. Pamphlets. <laughs> It's really funny. Yeah, so it's stuff like that. And it's like you don't, you can't see from that first mistake how you get to the later more catastrophic, more obviously corrupt mistakes. But at no point does he lose his humanity and his vulnerability and his complexity as a character. I mean, there's a lot to this guy. You know, his fall is kind of heartbreaking. And I think that that's a pretty big accomplishment for this film because, you know, this was a big story. This is based on a true event. This happened in in Roslyn, which is a Tony area on Long Island. And, and I think if you were to go back and look at some of the stories that were written about it, you probably wouldn't find too many that try to look at the wholeness of this person's life and, and try to understand his motives. Or certainly through the you know the more sympathetic lens that the film sort of takes on it. But I appreciated that aspect of it. I think it felt persuasive to me. You know the way he's sort of drawn here. He's not a villain. I mean, he's done his terrible things, but he's so so human. You've got so much more sympathy than I do for him. Hmm. I mean, I do see him as a villain, and I I see the story as being kind of an unfolding of the realization that we don't really know this man. And to some degree, it seems like this man maybe doesn't exactly know himself. Like, he knows his own secrets, but I'm not convinced that he knows his own heart, given that he's he ends up in a situation with uh, bi-coastal lovers who both think he's the only person in their life. And he kind of plays both of them that way he Mm -hmm. creates these two separate lives that mirrors the third life that he has at school to me he's a kind of opaque character and the deeper we get into him and i like i know i i said that a bit about uh portrait of a woman on fire and i meant it in a derogatory way i don't mean it in a derogatory way at all here i think it's fascinating how the more we see his chicanery the more we see what he's up to the less we truly know about who he is. And for me, the the thrills of this film, the, the stakes of this film, the enjoyment of this film is midway through, you realize just how deep into it he is, how many terrible things he's done, how many lies he's telling. And you realize that he's caught. You realize that it's done. It hasn't hit the fan yet, but it's a hundred percent going to. And it just becomes a question of how is his sociopathic nature going to crop up in each of these new encounters? You know, when the student calls him on it, when it's clear that 
she knows and she's going to tell people. And yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a low moment for him, for sure. It's a low <laughs> moment for him, but you get to watch the process of, like, the lie machine spinning up when the board member confronts him and he's unquestionably caught and going to be exposed and going to jail and he spins up the machine again when they're confronting Janny and he knows what he's done and he knows his involvement and he's trying desperately to signal to her that he's got this covered if she plays along with him throwing her under the bus and just step by step every time he confronts somebody new who knows part of the story or all of the story when he confronts the comptroller uh, yeah. and, and oh <laughs> turns God, it guy. all back onto him. <laughs> Just every single time you see a man who you know full well is going down, his boat is holed and he's going down. He's trying to stick like a new appendage into one of these holes and mm-hmm. delay the sinking of the boat. And I think it's fascinating. I think it's exciting. I think it's really interesting watching the many, many games he plays. But I didn't feel a sympathy for him in any of this. I, you know, I I, I, he'd earned everything that was coming to him. Certainly, but but I also I don't know. I, I do. I do feel like he was good at his job. But like, I think the sympathy kind of drains away if you can write it off as some sort of psychological condition. You can try to do that, but I think it kind of drains away when uh, he's cornered and he turns to threats, when he starts threatening those people that are, that are attacking him. And, and he yeah. does it without like flipping a switch. It's definitely the same character, just kind of shifting modes in order to survive. Well, I mean, I think about it. I, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but you think about somebody like the William H. Macy character in Fargo. I mean, like that. Oh, it's, kind of, it's somebody like that. It's somebody who's like, I understand that guy. I understand you know, his feelings of inferiority in that family dynamic and, you know, the fact that his father-in-law has all of the money and, and, and that he wants a piece of the action for himself. And I mean, it's a kind of a similar situation here where it's like he's the superintendent of, of schools, but he, you know, the parents, the people who actually are pumping money into the school and are, are putting all of this pressure on him and the other administrators and educators they make a whole lot more and he's got to try to keep up with that lifestyle. He feels he has to keep up with that lifestyle and, and uh, has a kind of a corrupting influence on him. I don't know. I do feel for him. And I feel like the last scene that he has with his former student turned lover in another city, when he finally gets pinched, I find that whole, you know, those, those sort of frantic final moments to be genuinely, you know, heartbreaking. Um, so there's that, that aspect. The other aspect I think that the film gets right is is how well it indicts the system itself and, you know, the other parents who both build him up and then are there to take him down in a fairly hypocritical way. And in the way they're kind of angling for their own interests and in a very aggressive way that he doesn't have the power to put down in a way that he wants to. I mean, you got that, you know, I think it's really significant those two scenes with the mother and this boy who clearly is just not going to be, a star student you know and she wants him to be in advanced classes and all these other things that he's just not capable and when you know you get to the end and everything has fallen apart for him and he's reciting or trying to recite something that he clearly has not written that has been written for him it's finally a moment where frank can just call that out in a way that he's never been able to before and i I just i don't know it's one of the you know the film is full of moments like that you make it, I think, a cut above what it might have been. I think that scene is very interesting and telling because 
he tries to use it as an educational moment. He's expressing things that he currently is is feeling in his emotions about all of this, but he doesn't turn on them aggressively. Like that scene, I was expecting him to blow up and tell that woman off for the absurdity of her ambitions. I was expecting him to tell the kid off for his own like stupidity and incompetence in not being able to pronounce this word. I, I was expecting a mean, vicious blow up. And instead, what we get is a kind of like desperate last ditch effort at education that the mother just can't take because it, it's not the answer she wants to hear. So like in that sequence and in the subsequent sequence where he runs off to to his lover and he goes to a bar and he's obviously trying to just escapism his way out of all of this for a few more desperate days, I think in those scenes you feel a sympathy for him, but I just don't feel the sympathy you do. <laughs> I I feel like his everything that we hear from him as he's like heading downhill with no brakes is a squirmy excuse. And when he talks about, like, I had to keep up with everybody else, you guys are making so much money, and here I am on an administrator's salary, that's just his way of saying, I was selfish and greedy and I got caught. When he talks about the justification of, I bought a 60-cent bagel out of school funds and nobody cared, that is not a justification for embezzling $4 million. <laughs> like, none of this is justified. What he did is so huge and so over the top. If he had stolen $250,000 in order to afford a better home in the community where these parents lived. That would be one thing. But he's living a ridiculously lavish lifestyle. He's buying seats on the Concord uh, for himself and his lover for, <laughs> for London getaways and claiming it's for the school. Like, yeah. It's excessive. It's ridiculous. It's over the top. And to me, it takes it all into an area where it's just not relatable. So yeah, I don't understand where you're getting the sympathy for him, but none of this makes the film for me any less enjoyable. Yeah. I feel like the difference between like his downfall here and William H. Macy's in Fargo, which is equally entertaining to watch, but I think you feel a lot more for him, is that William H. Macy's character in Fargo is experiencing so much weakness, so much helplessness. He's like a squirmy little weasel of a man. And the moment at the end where he squeals and tries to climb out the window, yelling at the people who are hauling him back in, it's hilarious and sad. But like Frank here, he's not a squealing little weasel. He's a smug, preening, prim man who's wearing extremely expensive suits, living in an extremely expensive lifestyle, and spending thirty thousand dollars a year on dry cleaning. I, I just don't, I don't well, see well, why well, you well, find well, that relatable. Well, well, I mean, but, but I mean, who who causes more harm? <laughs> of those two characters though i mean like you know uh, fargo he's responsible for you know multiple deaths god knows what's going to happen to his son who's who's going to lose both of his parents and here what you know the worst thing he's done is what take money that everyone's too rich to even realize that was lost until it was discovered i mean he's taking money out of the local tax system you can you can it's pretty right, I mean, but i mean these are taxes that are being paid you know, gratefully and by people who can peel it off of very, very large wads of money. So uh, I don't buy that. Anytime you're pulling money out of the tax system, that's money that could have gone well, I mean, I'm not somewhere else. I'm not saying what he's doing is correct. I just think but, I just think it's very well explicated by the film, and I, maybe that's where we agree. I find I find that he, I find part, where I his I find his motives in the you know the slippery slope that he was on in this situation to be 
entirely understandable and i feel like the system that allowed it to happen is indicted in a very um, pointed and, and interesting way uh, by this film i mean I, I don't think it's a mistake that those two things are combined that it's not just this guy taking advantage of this situation but the situation itself which provides bad incentives for bad actions sure i'm just saying this would be a very different movie if all of that money was coming from donations from all of these like well-heeled families from alumni from donors from like local companies like essentially if it wasn't public money but we may be uh focusing on something far too narrow and we've got a lot of yeah. other things to talk yeah about yeah for sure well i think we all like this movie and some of us just like it differently than others um yeah. <laughs> With that, let's wrap up this discussion, but we'll be right back after the break to talk about connections between bad education and election. Bob, you have me serve as a public face of this district, an image that reflects prosperity. Okay, I know it might look bad all laid out like that, but try and see this from my point of view. This is me doing the job I was hired for. Wrinkled suit? Yeah, okay, that's one thing. This is something else entirely. No, no, no. My, my employment contract has a clause that allows me full discretion on all charges necessary and proper to the discharge of my duties. I know that. I wrote your employment contract. The key word there was discretion. Bob, you're not hearing me. I'm hearing fine. You spent $30,000 on dry cleaning. Over a number of years, yes, I did, and I will pay it all back. Right, but I did it for the good of the school. No, you just, you wanted to look pretty. So now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. So I think a, a way into talking about connections to this film is to talk about a character we haven't really talked about uh, that much in Bad Education, which is Rachel, the high school journalist played by Geraldine Vishwanathan. Um, you might know from Blockers. She's been in some other films. I think she's really she's good. She's good. And, she's so yeah, good. She's, <laughs> I know. I'm looking forward to seeing yeah, her and more stuff. But really there's funny. a scene where she talks to her father about how he was witness to, uh, but didn't participate in, but also didn't report uh, some corrupt acts. And I think that's sort of a, you know, it's a great bit of acting on her part where you can kind of read her thoughts where she realizes she has to go all the way with this. She doesn't want it to, she's out against corruption in all its forms. But at the same time, there is sort of a, you know, when you're a grown up, you have more to lose. You know, I, as a kid, she can pursue this and bring down the system where her father is, is compromised and, and, you know, in ways he needs to support his family and so on and so forth. It, you know, and I think in an election, you get all these people who have maybe grew up with these high ideals that kind of haven't really held on to them into adulthood. But adulthood itself is kind of a condition that wears away at it. So I think the contrast between kids and grownups is worth exploring in these films. I think what's most interesting about that aspect of these two films to me is in both cases, we have kids that see malfeasance in adults and are disillusioned by it. And the films both, I think, really point out the degree to which when the people in charge of you, when the people who are responsible for your safety and well-being and, and education utterly fail you, who do you go to? Like, Rachel, I kept thinking, like, if I was in Rachel's shoes, would I have the courage to go through with it? And my first thought was, like, no, she's in New York. Like, I would probably go to one of the New York papers and say, I have this evidence and end up handing over 
uh, my scoop to like a more seasoned and responsible reporter. And like, maybe they get the credit, but I don't have to like suffer the fall. I just don't think I would trust in myself well enough to to take the stand that she does. And in the same sort of way, like particularly the boys in election who are watching Jim rig the election, they know that there's something wrong. And they have nobody to appeal to until the janitor, until another adult comes along and hands them the solution that proves they were right. They have nobody to appeal to. They they appeal to his superior who dismisses them in a very impatient, hand-wavy kind of way. And I think both of these films just create a really interesting like there are a lot of films and I'm I'm looking at you, John Hughes, that portray adults as not just corrupt, but dimwitted and compromised and having like lost any kind of the verve of life. But all of those movies are about like kids still kind of getting out there and doing it for themselves, doing it on their own, like understanding the world in a better, smarter, more vivid way than boring, sad old adults. Here, the adults are actively conniving to gaslight the kids and to keep the kids down. And the kids don't have anywhere other than themselves to reach out to. They have no resources. And they kind of have to fall back on hanging on to their own beliefs and their own surety in the truth. And I think it just ends up being a a really strong emotional element in both of these movies. It's funny you mentioned like John Hughes because of course, you know, the Ferris Bueller connection between Mm -hmm. comes into play there. And it's like, I wonder if, you know, if I watch Ferris Bueller now, I'm almost certain I feel more sympathy to the principal than I did when I saw it. It's like, it's like this guy, this guy is dealing with kind of a, you know, I mean, I think I've come to think less well of Ferris over time. And now it's like, you know, he looks, ends up looking like a fool, you know, this kind of human cartoon trying to, you know, bring this student to justice, I guess, but the student is out of line, you know, and disrespectful. He um, is both of those things. I think a really difficult thing to contend with with Ferris Bueller is that the principal there is played yeah. by Jeffrey Jones, oh, yeah, for, who yeah, right. ended up pleading no contest to soliciting a minor. That yeah. really brings him and his character and his his career into question in a pretty difficult way. Yeah, we're watching Deadwood now. It's like, okay. <laughs> well, Amadeus, he's an Amadeus too, right? Yeah, oh my gosh, see. he's so good in Amadeus as well. Know. So this no, is hard for Tasha because Amadeus is like your favorite film or something. Close it is, to it's it, right? up there. It's, it's, it's top five, I would say, uh, all-time favorites. So yeah, that's rough. But uh, like in that case, he is a human cartoon and he ends up in a place that recalls a Wile E. Coyote and a Roadrunner cartoon more than anything else. He is brought low, but he also, everything that I was saying about Jim maybe being justified in taking Tracy's election personally, because he's going to have to work with someone who he is deeply uncomfortable with and finds like unpleasant and intolerable and pushy. The principal in Ferris Bueller's Day Off doesn't have that excuse. He's got a vast student body to deal with. He does not have to have Ferris Bueller working side by side with him like every day of the year. Like his vindictiveness is personal in a really inappropriate way. So I understand maybe sympathizing with the adults a little more in John Hughes movies now than then, but maybe not that character so much. Yeah, but to sort of bring it back to these two films, when I watch election and bad education and think about frank and jim i kind of think about the beginning of their careers and i also think about the fact that both of them are good educators and i can imagine very easily a past in which this stuff really mattered i mean you know jim won multiple teacher of the year awards and and frank 
rose to the ranks of superintendent. You can see that in his, he knows all the students and he knows all the information about everyone and their ambitions and, you know, more than just even their names. I mean, he really knows and cares about his students. Both of these movies literally start with their characters up in front of a, a huge crowd of cheering people, like accepting plaudits. Like both yeah. of these movies open with specifically that scene of somebody who is beloved by their students, by the populace, by the locals. But you don't catch them at that point. You catch them at the end when things unravel for them. And you think about like what that has meant, you know, what kind of like bad relationship they've had, like in Jim's case, maybe a marriage that is, you know, not making him terribly happy. And the fact that they're having trouble conceiving and there's a lot of frustration in the home and his eyes are wandering and he's dealing with his feelings about his best friend and the terrible trouble that his friend got into. And it's just a lot of things that are eating away at him. And meanwhile, he's giving the same lectures over and over again to the same probably mostly bored group of high school students and wondering whether he's really you know making a difference and it's just like you get it you get like just the wear and tear of this profession just of life on adults <laughs> you know i mean you, you, you know you get older and you become the sum of decisions that you've made and not all of them are great decisions and some of those decisions have had disappointing results and you know it's a much different place than tracy flick is coming from and it's a much different place than from where rachel is coming from in bad education where they can be young and idealistic and they haven't had to make the types of choices that say rachel's father had to make you know between running with the crowd and you know blowing the whistle i mean that's not an easy decision it's not one that rachel has to had to make uh it's something an adult has to make and it wears on you and i think both films are sensitive to that i think both films are also sensitive to the fact that not everybody in high school is like that both tracy and rachel like we see them sitting in classrooms full of sleepy-eyed disengaged not all their uh, students who don't have their drive and focus like i think both of these films acknowledge that being an educator is tough, that winning hearts and minds is a a difficult and long-term engagement, and that there are a lot of people that you just can't reach, and a lot of people that are just checked out and not interested. And the Tracy Flicks and the Rachels of the world are very much the exception. And to some degree, it's the downfall of both men in both movies is the fact that they're not used to dealing with people like on that level of organization and ambition and and desire to move forward. They're used to trying to have to to work to get the guy in the back row who's sleeping through every class or, you know, to some degree, the good natured, but kind of dim witted, like Paul figures who are there for you, but maybe not capable of taking in as much as you'd like. Maybe not capable of engaging with Martin Chuzzlewit on the level that you want. So we should talk about these foils. Both have foils in the forms of uh, precocious young women who uh, have ambitions and are smart and maybe smarter than the grownups around them. But I think both Rachel and Tracy are very different characters in these films. Yeah, for certain. And it's a lot of it is just like personality and, and attitude. Rachel seems regretful about the burden that's been thrust on her. Like mm-hmm. she seems to take her duties very seriously and at the same time kind of wish that they weren't there. And we get to see her going through an awakening, going through very rapidly and uh, to me a little sadly, mostly off screen, the process uh, from, eh, I'm I'm here for a quote, I'm writing a puff piece, to, oh, I need to bring this entire corrupt institution to its knees. (laughs) 
I do wish uh, maybe very slightly more time was spent on that. The scene with her and her father where she realizes like what laid him low and how she has to be different is fantastic. It's it's touching. It's well-constructed and it's subtle. It doesn't exactly wear the subtext on its sleeve. But I wish there had been just like maybe one more scene in there like of that quality in the space between – Frank telling her every piece could be a, a masterpiece, like you need to actually work at this, and her making the decision to face down Elton Janney's character and like go into that tomb and, and dig everything up. But I think the really big difference between them is the sense that Rachel works really, really hard to earn everything that she gets by the end, but there's never a sense that she feels she deserves it, that she's entitled to it. She never feels smug about it. We never see her throw a like a little happy dance uh, in the, the corridors mm-hmm. of power when she thinks that she's gotten this uh, this piece together, that she's like broken her, her big scoop. Yeah, I think she'd be happier if she didn't have to report this, frankly. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, Tracy's positive side is uh, being bright and precocious and dedicated to what she does and and really, truly caring. But her downside is her entitlement and her smugness and her deep-seated resentment of anybody who seems to be stepping up to take anything, like anything at all in the world. Just the idea of, like, Paul running for that office utterly infuriates her because she's decided that it's hers. So, you know, there's there's just like a, a smug awful like bitterness under her chipper exterior and like rachel has neither the chipper exterior nor all of those things lurking underneath it yeah i don't think our feelings toward rachel are that complicated i mean i think i think she's a very sympathetic character in a way that tracy is not as cleanly we have strong disagreements well maybe not among us but but you know genevieve i think who if she was here would have made maybe a stronger argument for tracy but i i think you know rachel's someone who uh who's you know decency we can recognize and who's you know courage and fear and all of these other emotions that she's feeling having to report this story you you definitely connect with that you know in, in her decision making is complex and it makes sense it, it's it, it interesting to be the contrast between what she feels compelled to do what she feels she needs to do and then you know, the reactions of her editor who just wants nothing to do with the story this hot being the editor of the student newspaper for him is about getting into college you know that and that which is kind of the Roslyn High School way, right? It's like everything in that school is directed toward placing these kids in, you know, an Ivy League school or in a top school. That's that's what the whole purpose of the thing is. And that's that way to an extent to election too. I mean, student government is about, you know, that's what the thing that Tammy gets upset about. It's like all this is benefiting our a bunch of kids who want to put this on their college applications. What Rachel is trying to do is obviously a whole lot more substantive than that and more dangerous. So both of these films have very specific settings. We have the Omaha, suburban Omaha of uh, election. We have the sort of moneyed Long Island of bad education. But I mean, high school is kind of high school everywhere. I think I think Rosalind's a little uh, considerably more high end than the high school and the George Washington Carver High School and um, election, but it also kind of has a leveling effect where the environment is somewhat of the same. Or am, am I off base here? Are these are these two very different schools? I think they're a little. I think they're different. I mean, I think okay. I think I think there's something. There's a very specific phenomenon that bad education is trying to draw out, and it's something I've become 
more familiar with as a parent who is concerned about my kid's education, as all parents are, and school placement and, you know, and how that affects, you know, real estate values and all this other stuff and also the kinds of pressures. Is that- it being a grown up fun? <laughs> it is. It is. But, but but and you can feel it and you know when you're, you know, uh, my kids are in, a, are in a very good Chicago public, you know, elementary school and there's an atmosphere there of entitlement and pressure, engagement to put it kindly on the part of the parents of the school to try to give it a lift to try to to try to make it as good as they can make it, which is a fine thing, of course, but it can have a negative effect. And you see that come out so much in bad education in ways I've already talked about in terms of, um, you know, incentivizing the wrong things and making it seem like teachers are, you know, like waiters at a restaurant dealing with customers who have these kind of high-end ideas of what their customer experience is supposed to be like. And it's about on educators to accommodate that in whatever way that they're supposed to, you know, in whatever way they can. And that plays, I think, a very large role in the action of the story and what happens in the story. And there's zero consequence in the end for the system that made this possible Mm. um, and all the consequence, all the burden as usual is placed on the educators, no matter how corrupt they are. And the fact is like, it isn't just Frank, you know, it's Pam, it's other people down the line. It's the comptroller. It's the low level person who takes, you know, money for a PlayStation or whatever, like all that stuff is, you know, this is an administration-wide scandal. And scandals like that don't happen, you know, just because you just got to happen to have a bunch of bad apples in the administration. It has, it has to do with the system in which they're operating. For me, what stands out most in the setting, just as far as the settings compare, is it's more about the personality of the places and the way it comes out of familiarity. Like we talked about Alexander Payne's familiarity with Midwestern life and the Midwestern setting. We haven't really talked much about Corey Finley, the director of Thoroughbreds and Bad Education. He's literally documenting something that happened at his school. He's documenting something that happened at his hometown. And it was the biggest scandal and like the biggest story of uh, of his youth. So he he actually met Frank, the character that uh, this is this all is based on and for him this was a kind of a personal story but it also just sort of speaks to the degree and the way like he came up in this environment he knows what the pressures were like he knows all of these things that you're that you're talking about in terms of like all of the little bit players all of the little uh, pressure points all of the personality that comes out in bad education in the same sort of way that it comes out in uh, election, it's coming from personal experience. And I think a lot of the textures of the settings of these two films, a lot of the sense of of reality and personality, um, and particularly just sort of the almost like the low levelness of some of this, these characters, the the specificity of their dress, of their, even their body types. Like most of them just don't look like movie stars. I think an awful lot of that comes out of the, I've been there and these are my people quality of these two films. With that, why don't we wind this down? But uh, if you have any more comments on on election or bad education, drop us a line. We'll talk about it on feedback. Election is currently streaming on Showtime and rentable through the usual services. There's also a very nice Criterion Blu-ray slash DVD edition that came out a couple of years ago. Bad Education premiered on HBO April 25th and should be available on HBO Go for the foreseeable future. We'll be right back with your next picture show. 
Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I don't know about lately. I'm really talking here less about films that I watched recently and more about films that just surfaced thinking about and watching Bad Education in particular. I really wanted to sit down and discuss uh, the immense pleasures of the Canadian film Owning Mahoney, uh, yeah, starring yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman and John Hurt and Minnie Driver. Like, when you have a film like this that's fundamentally about somebody who has embezzled a great deal of money for his own personal pleasures and is seeing his world collapse uh, as his theft comes to light, it's impossible for me to not think of Owning Mahoney and just like, what a terrific tone poem it is. What an amazing performance Philip Seymour Hoffman gives and how little that film is about the tension that we see here. Uh, it's a very quiet movie. It, it feels like a very personal movie. Unfortunately, it's also a movie that is apparently not streaming anywhere. If you want to see this movie, oh. you can buy a, a, a disc. Oh, really? Yeah. It's hmm. uh, at least according to justwatch.com, like oh, none sucks. of the major services have yeah, there's, it. For, there's just like sort of, of like this 90s aughts gap where it's like, you know, stuff came out on physical media, but it was like before streaming became a big deal. It's kind of like stuff falls into. Uh, this another world that you, that makes it really hard to see, and especially with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman no longer being with us, and this being such a central and and high quality, like terrific role, mm-hmm. it's just really disappointing. Uh, Owning Mahoney also based on a true story about a, a pretty immense embezzling scandal. But I don't want to go too deeply into it because uh, people just can't see it unless they want to go purchase the physical medium. So instead, I'll talk a little bit about The Informant, as I, I teased earlier. The Informant, as far as I'm concerned, it's a Steven Soderbergh film from uh, 2009 starring Matt Damon as a mid-level executive working with the FBI to expose uh, price fixing of an additive in the grain industry. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the perfect love child of the two films that we talked about uh, this this week. It's got elections like bright, sunny, bouncy, uh, kind of satirical, like playful tone. Uh, but it is the story of somebody who is monumentally self-deluded and is like slowly watching both the, the rise and the collapse of the self-delusion that he's created. And I, I don't want to get into it too much. I don't want to spoil it too much, but uh, it's just, it's such a fun movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's one of those things where if you told me you're going to fall in love with a movie about price fixing in the lysine industry <laughs> and uh, the procedural effort to uncover it and uh, track down the malefactors, I would probably point at you and laugh. <laughs> but in the same way, you could point at election and say, well, this is a movie about high school politics and a teacher that gets overly invested. Like the description just doesn't tell the story. In the same way, election is like meticulously constructed around uh, these different points of view. The informant is meticulously constructed around a single point of view, around a single internal monologue, around a single perspective that's just a really surprising and unusual perspective. The Matt Damon character has a running monologue in his head that's just all of these like interesting little little factoids and little thoughts and little distractions. And the focal point of the film is the point where you you kind of get underneath that and see what's underneath that and uh, like exactly who he is. In the same way, Badge Education feels like it's entirely about uncovering bit by bit 
like who Frank is, like what he's about, what he's done. The informant feels like it's also focused very tightly on that single point. But God, the ride to get there is so entertaining. It's it's so lively. I love that film to a fault. And I kept thinking about watching yeah. Bad Education. No, it's one of my it's one of my favorite Soderbergh films, period. I love it. And I, I, I read the Kurt Eichenwald book it's based on, which is also really compelling, but not a comedy in the same way that the informant is kind of a comedy. Suspense comedy. And and what was so ingenious about the adaptation from Soderbergh is is that it was like it seized on this idea. I mean, the one thing that was so kind of wild about the book and the story was this character was this guy who uh, was an informant, but just wouldn't get in line in ways that were just like confounding to his handlers. And it creates a lot of suspense in the book and in the movie. It creates just a lot of fun and comedy. I mean, because it's just so, it gets so absurd and to add this inner monologue yeah it's a real masterstroke i love that movie me too also you know what great score by marvin oh, hamlish yeah. who was like <laughs> one of his, one of his you know, it's it's so endlessly surprising it had not been that prolific for a while and it was one of his later later um um contributions but uh yeah it's really really yeah, fun he, he did the score for bananas uh the woody allen films bananas with a kazoo that just I, I just love it. It's just like so funny. He came back to do um, Soderbergh's Behind the Candelabra too. Oh, yeah, wow. Good for him. Yeah. yeah, the score in the informant is so lively, and it it does so much to tell the tone. And it's just it's it contributes so strongly to the like the bright, upbeat, like slightly coked out, overexposed uh, nature of the the inside of Mark Whitaker's head. It's a load bearing soundtrack in all the right ways. <laughs> So yeah, that's uh, Steven Soderbergh's The Informant, which sadly, uh, Oni Mahoney, not available for streaming. The Informant is available on just about every rental streaming service there is. So that's me. Uh, Keith, what's been good for you? Well, I keep thinking about Oni Mahoney. I was like, if what if like, all right, so you could buy it, but what if there was some kind of store you could go to where you could just pay a smaller mm. fee to borrow it for a while? I don't know. Oh. Maybe. It's probably at libraries, at least. Is it called the Pirate Bay? <laughs> the Pirate Bay. Yes, Sadly, library is not very open uh, right now. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know what's open? Uh, Pirate Bay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna get, we're gonna get shut down as a podcast. Uh, all right, for me, I'm gonna do a quick one, uh, quick recommendation. It's a documentary that's streaming now called "It Started as a Joke," which is a documentary about uh, Eugene Merman. Uh, in general, in particular, the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival, which was basically, it, you know, as the title says, it started as a joke, uh, kind of like a one person deciding to throw a comedy festival that kind of mocked the pretensions of other comedy festivals. But it also lasted for 10 years and was kind of an extension, uh, which it gets in, the film gets into, of his efforts to put on shows to promote and that promoted people that brought people up and like it was part of a community that uh, all comedy community that supported each other and it's kind of like traces the beginning and end of that by way of his last show because uh, by the last festival rather because he's he's moved to Massachusetts at that point and and of course the the, the sad element is is he's moved there in part because uh, his wife uh, is is quite ill from cancer. Uh, and it's kind of like touched on a little bit in the early parts of the movie. And then the latter part of the movie is like him 
trying to find a way to make comedy around around this. And uh, the footnote is that his, his wife uh, died in January, and she comes off in the film as a wonderful, lively, uh, creative presence. And you can see how the loss is so devastating. Uh, but it, he comes off, you know, he's not really been a confessional autobiographical comedian, but he definitely comes off as someone who uses comedy to express himself and to process things and to try to reconcile uh, this tremendous uh, loss in his life. Impending loss when the film was made and now a real loss is quite interesting to see. It, it, it is not it's not a masterfully constructed film. I think it's kind of veers from, from place to place. Uh, but uh, it's entertaining and worth very much worth watching and quite moving. And also uh, just the list of people who make appearances kind of uh, speak to the influence uh, he's had, which includes everyone from John Hodgman to Bobcat Goldthwait to Ira Glass, who gets outrageously drunk in one scene of the, of the wow. film, uh, and, uh, White Snack, Michael Ian Black, and so on and so forth. Um Come on, on Johnny, who kind of credits Merman with, with really kind of giving you a big leg up. So uh, it's worth your time uh, for sure. Uh, he's one of my favorite comedians, so it was. I like to see a film dedicated to him and 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 to a little bit know a little bit more about his story, which isn't hasn't really always been out there in the public. Well, what's it? Is it on a, a service? It's on the, all your regular streaming services. Okay, but like, not, it's not specific to anyone. No, no, no. It's it's rentable at this point. Got it. Um, okay. So, yeah. Uh, Scott, how about you? Yeah, so, you know, I, I've been doing, um, you know, again, in the flow of, of work, I've uh, been doing this, these newsletter double features for the Friday edition of the Watching newsletter for the New York Times. And, the New York uh, Times? I, that's a nice publication. Um, oh, and, it's the uh, paper of record. It is. It's it's all that and more. So one, I did one that kind of uh, was uh, a Yorgos Lanthimos double feature. Uh, one of them was it was Dog Tooth, but it was kind of built around the killing of a sacred deer, which is which just debuted a return probably to Netflix, uh, so people can watch that again. It was the first time that I saw that film since seeing it uh, when it first came out at TIFF. Uh, I also did a did a feature around Lanthimos, uh, who I talked to there for the Washington Post. In any case, you know it was a film that I admired quite a bit at the time. Uh, it was it, it was released to quite a bit of controversy, but not a lot of box office. I mean, it's a film that I think people that a lot of people were confused and repulsed by in a way that they weren't by something like The Favorite, his most recent movie. Uh, but returning to it again, it just it kind of is one of my you know. It's kind of up there with Dogtooth. It's kind of my favorite of his films, uh, seeing it the second time. And, and, and the revelation for me, I mean, this is a movie that's about the relationship between the surgeon played by Colin Farrell and the, a kid played by Barry Keegan, who has, they, you know, it's a very strange relationship that they're trying, that the, the film is slow to reveal. But basically, the kid is on some sort of a mission of revenge against uh, you know something that the surgeon did involving his father um, uh, and he torments the surgeon and his family uh, his wife played by Nicole Kidman and then his two children and the thing is i think my mistake seeing it the first time was to really focus on this very strange malevolent uh boy and all of the torments he was putting this family through that was where my focus was but then when you see it through the lens, of, I think the proper lens, which is the surgeon, and, and you understand that this is a film about a man who cannot take responsibility for the decisions that he's made, for the errors that he's made, 
and then he can't and then he can't take responsibility for a very consequential decision towards the end of the film involving his own family members just all kind of clicked for me and became uh very bleakly funny and sharp and it's got its own language and you know got a very powerful Kubrickian style um it's off-putting in a way that I always enjoy <laughs> it's extremely unpleasant which I like um so um yeah I I, I really felt like I, I um underrated that film at the time and I would encourage the stout-hearted or the strong-stomached to watch the film for the first time or maybe watch it for a second time to see what, uh, maybe you'll have the experience I had with it, because I, I really, really loved it on second viewing, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I can't imagine how it would play the second time. That film reminded me, in a not necessarily positive way, of Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell. There's just a feeling that the central protagonist has made a like a single questionable decision, a decision that the film implies might have been a, a fairly bad one, but like doesn't go so far as to, to spell it out in a way that would really get you definitively not on their side. And then you're just watching them be tortured like endlessly <laughs> like throughout the film yeah. for, for that sin in a way that just seems to become more and more outsized. And that uh, by the end, it, it seems unfair, but killing of a sacred deer, like the, the climax of the film, the, the climactic decision that the father yeah. makes is so unsupportable and so insane like it's even wonderful for... it's so perfect it's like the perfect perfect thing for him to do this guy who cannot who you can't, can't take even... decisions no can't make i know a decision, it's just, it's can't just take responsibility it's just so disturbing that scene but so funny i mean that is like the ultimate in dark comedy for me that that moment of just pure absurdity when he's spinning around like that with a sack over everybody's head. I mean, it's so good. I just don't know, Scott. I don't know about you sometimes. I, I don't know how you can look at bad education and find a deep well of empathy in yourself for <laughs> for Frank and bad education. But you can look at that scene and not feel an empathy for his, his wife and child so strong that it cancels out any comedy and like the insane and horrible thing that he's doing. Oh, yeah, I guess that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. Other people are affected in that scene, but I, but I, but I thought like thematically it cl- it clicked. It, I mean, it's a, it it's, it's really a very dark click. film. It's just dark. It hit me on that level. Uh, even though, yes, the actual action of the scene is unpleasant to say the least. It's a wild movie. Uh, where again can people find it? Uh, Netflix and anywhere else, but uh, if they don't have Netflix, but uh, it's right there, streaming for you. Okay, well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out May 5th and May 12th. Scott, what's coming up next? Earlier in the year, before the coronavirus shutdown, Kitty Green's The Assistant slipped in and out of theaters before audiences got a chance to appreciate its chilling, day-in-the-life portrayal of a junior assistant working for a Harvey Weinstein-like entertainment executive. Julia Garner of Ozark and the Americans stars as a recent college graduate put in a compromised position. She picks up on sexually inappropriate behavior by her boss, but reporting her concerns to human resources might endanger her job and curb her aspirations to be a film producer. With The Assistant now available for streaming rental, we wanted to take a look at Mike Nichols' 1988 film Working Girl, another story about women and power in the workplace. What's it like to be an ambitious young woman at the bottom of the corporate food chain? And what options do you have when your boss misbehaves? 
We'll talk it over on our next pair of episodes. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of election, bad education, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find me writing over there, but uh, mostly commissioning and editing and posting other people's stuff. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott, what about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, and you can find my work at The New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Guardian, uh, Vulture, and other fine outlets. Keith? Um, you can find me on Twitter at kfips3000. I'm a freelance writer for hire. You can find my work at The Ringer. You can find my work at Vulture. You can find my work at Mel Magazine. I just had a few things running in. Uh, my old employer, uprocks.com. Uh, uh, and uh, what else? I think that's those are the main ones. Oh, you can find me at Fangoria, writing about horror movies on yeah, a semi-regular basis. Uh, our absent co-host, Genevieve Kosky, is the deputy TV editor at Vulture. You can find her on Twitter as at Genevieve Kosky. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get wonderful bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jake for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Did you stay-